Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 10, Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. We're continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Before I read the text today, as you remember, Jesus has said that there's a need for workers to go out for the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We need people to go out and to speak God's truth. And He commissions the twelve to go out and do just that. And then Jesus looks even beyond the immediate mission of the twelve to the further mission of God's disciples in the future. And this would ultimately include us as the disciples of Christ. And He gives us warnings promises and encouragements all wrapped together in order to help us to know what's coming and to be prepared and ultimately to rely on God's grace and His goodness when difficulty and challenges come our way. So let me read the passage. I am, I'm going to read from verse 26 to verse 42, the end of chapter 10. So Matthew 10, starting in verse 26, this is the word of the Lord. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword." For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward." Let's bow our heads again together. Heavenly Father, I I do believe that perhaps the primary thrust of this text is actually encouragement, that we would not be afraid, that we would have sufficient trust in You and a proper reverent fear of You, such that we are not ultimately afraid of any man or any woman. God, I pray that You would comfort us, encourage us, and at the same time give us a deeper fear and reverence and awe of who You are supreme over all other things, so that we would aim to please You and ultimately not be slaves to the fear of man. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, you may recognize verses 34 and to 37. We covered really last week in the sermon, so I'm not going to spend much time on verses 34 to 37. I'm going to sort of skip over those because we covered them last Sunday. Uh, Let me give you uh, the points for the sermon. I know it's a lot, but we've got five points. And so the the sermon uh, works like this. I've, I've called it five reasons to reject fear. And here are how the points work. Have no fear because, and then I have five points. So have no fear because, then five points. Have no fear because, number one, the truth will ultimately be revealed to all, verses 26 and 27. Have no fear because, number two, your soul cannot be harmed by man, verse 28. Have no fear because, number three, your father is in control, verses 29 to 31. Number four, have no fear because Jesus will acknowledge you before His Father. This is verses 32 to 33 and 38 to 39. And number five, have no fear because you represent the King. This is verses 40 to 42. So let's dive in here with point one, have no fear because the truth will ultimately be revealed to all. So look with me here as I read again verses 26 and 27. So have no fear of them. Just, just let me stop here. I don't, want to get, I don't want to get ahead of myself. You may have already noticed that three times in this paragraph here, verses 26 to 33, three times Jesus will say, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. So I just want to, I want to give an argument for why I'm titling the sermon and making the sermon about this point. I think Jesus is making this text about this point. So Jesus' main point, he says it three times, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear man, That's the main point, and then Jesus is going to be supporting His main point with a number of arguments, and I'm trying to break them down into smaller pieces so we can follow it, but Jesus wants to encourage you today. Jesus wants to reassure you today. He does not want you, just like the psalm that Greg just read, to be fretting because of evildoers, to be afraid because of evildoers. Jesus wants to eliminate sinful fear. He wants to put to death sinful uh, frets, threatening feelings. He wants us instead to fear God and not to fear any man. And he gives us a series of arguments. And this first one is that the truth will ultimately be revealed to all. So let's see if we can see his point, verses 26 and 27. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. I will admit you, admit to you, uh, some of these arguments take a second to figure out what exactly does Jesus mean by that? I heard the words, what exactly do those two verses mean? Do you, do you share some of the struggle when you first read this? You know, what exactly is he getting at? And I think this is what Jesus is saying. In not just today's world, it could be any time in history, Anytime you have genuinely, deeply committed Christians who believe the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, and we believe it is truly God's inspired and inerrant word, and we seek at times failingly but truly to live by it and to follow it and to obey what God has called us to and to trust in God's promises and to be bold for Jesus, uh, we are going to face opposition. That was last Sunday's sermon. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents. But be innocent as doves. Jesus says they're going to flog you in synagogues. They're going to hand you over to governors and kings. Before Gentiles, you will stand. There's going to be opposition. Doesn't matter when we live. Doesn't matter where we live. There will always be a degree of real hostility and opposition to the Christian faith. And so here's Jesus' argument against fear when opposition comes. Here's the argument. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. 
Here's the argument. So many of us in this room, I hope it's all of us in this room, but certainly many of us in this room, we believe this is God's word. And I I believe that by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, I believe you can know this is God's word. I believe that the Spirit testifies with our spirit. I believe that the Spirit can confirm to our spirit that we know this truly is God's Word. We we know that Jesus rose from the dead. It is by faith that we see things that are not seen. It is by the conviction of of God's Spirit within us that we can be confident to the point of knowing. Uh, In in history, we've called it, uh, it's been called uh, the self-authenticating truth of Scripture. But here's the thing. Not everyone has the Holy Spirit within them. Not everyone is convinced and convicted that this is true. And so in the meantime, as we speak this truth, People are going to look at us, and people are either going to look at us like we're crazy at times. People might say things about us behind our back. They might slander us. They might contradict us. They might laugh at us. They might make us feel foolish for what we believe. And here's what Jesus is saying. What right now in the world out there and in the culture is going to be laughed at about Scripture? Here's the deal. There's a day coming where the truth of Scripture is going to be publicly known to all people. This will happen at the final judgment. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever on final judgment, will there be any doubt that Jesus rose bodily from the dead? There will be no doubt because whether you're a believer or an unbeliever at the time of death, you will stand before the visible, risen, ascended, glorified Jesus by whom God will judge all people. And so listen, don't have any fear of people mocking or belittling or making fun of or looking at us a certain way. Don't be afraid of that. The day is coming where what is hidden will be revealed. Uh, what, what is, uh, what is uh, covered will be, will be made known. And Jesus is saying, therefore, because one day all of this is going to be completely clear and known to all, we should be confident to speak it with boldness. Let me quote um, Don Carson. If the truth will emerge at the end, on the last day, if it's all going to become seen as true, when we all stand before the Lord as our judge, if the truth will emerge at the end, How wise to declare it fully and boldly now. Another commentator. I understand these verses to say, first, God at the last judgment will vindicate the truth of what you disciples now say. So secondly, don't be afraid to teach the whole of what Jesus is telling you. In other words, let there be no covering up of difficult subjects. Indeed, shout even Jesus' toughest teachings from the housetops. Christian adversaries seem in the right now. But at the judgment, the whole world will discover that true Christians were right after all. Let Christ's ministers faithfully reveal His truth and then leave it to Him in due time to reveal their integrity. Think about it. The day is coming when the unbelieving friend or neighbor or relative of yours and you are going to stand before the final judgment. Let's try to visualize this. It's not something fictitious. This is actual, real, literal. We're going to stand before the Lord. And imagine someone who knew you, and maybe I was timid or cowardly toward them. I was not very bold in my witness to them. I just thought, they're just going to think I'm out to lunch. I don't, they know I'm a Christian. Maybe they know I'm in the ministry, or maybe they know that you're, you go to church, but they don't, I don't want to bring this up too much. I don't want to make an awkward situation of it. The day is coming when, when people will look at you and say, you knew all along all this truth, And now we are standing here being held accountable for this truth before the risen, visible Jesus, and you didn't let me know because you were afraid of what I was going to think about you then? Now there's no hiding from it. It's evident. Even the demons are here. 
It says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow. And I take that to mean every single knee. I take that to believe Satan's knee will bow against his will before the Lord. Every demon will bow the knee before the Lord. Every believer will bow the knee willingly before the Lord. And every unbeliever perhaps unwillingly before the Lord. But every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if that is going to be revealed one day with no way to hide from it, and we know it's true now, we owe it to the world around us to be bold and direct and loving and clear with the truth now. You're not going to have a day in the future where you regret being bold about Jesus now. That's not going to happen. On the final day, what are we going to feel like? We're going to feel like, why wasn't I more bold? Remember that, that poem? I've heard it from Carson, Don Carson a lot. It says, on that day, when I see his face, thorn-shadowed face, beautiful face, when I see that face, I will wish I had given him more. So if the truth is going to be revealed, let us be bold about the truth even now. I hope that gives us confidence to know that when the culture is so opposed to a basic biblical worldview, I mean, if you just believe the basics of Scripture, you're laughed out of the room. Just know the day is coming where it will be known by all that Jesus is raised from the dead and God's word is true in all that it affirms. If that day is coming for all to see, how bold and clear should we be now with the truth that we already know? Point number two, we should have no fear because your soul cannot be harmed by man. Verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I remember uh, John Piper was being interviewed one time, and they asked him about how you deal with the fear of man. It's the same kind of issue, right? We care too much what people think about us. And there's not a person in this room who is free of this sin who just has no problem with this sin. There, there's no one in this room who is completely sinless in this area of their life. We, all of us, care too much what the people in our life think about us, and we tend to value the p- opinions of people over the opinion and the perspective of the view of God. How do we fight against that? And John Piper was asked this in an interview, and just it's so simple. His answer is so simple, but the way he said it stuck with me. He said, the way you fight the fear of man is you learn to deeply and profoundly fear God. It's not that you don't care at all what people think. It's that you care far more what God thinks. And when God becomes the supreme one in our mind, in our heart, in our thoughts, then the opinions of others will lose their weight when compared to Him. So think about this for a second. What can man do to you? I mean, this verse, let's think about this this verse this week. This is an amazing verse. Jesus' argument against fear is literally this. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. His argument against fear is this. Don't be afraid of people. All they can do is torture and kill you. That's the logic of the argument. They can kill your body. They can do horrible things to you physically. They can, they can torture you like Paul was whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and thrown in jail and eventually beheaded. They can, they can kill your body. They can do horrible things to you, but you shouldn't be afraid. I'm thinking, Jesus... Uh, that sounds terrifying. And Jesus goes, okay, if I, actually we should maximize fear. Fear should go this way. You should actually be afraid of God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So here's how you can think about it. Uh, what man can do to us is this. What man can do to us is at worst temporary. Number two, it cannot harm our soul. 
and ultimately it will be judged and made right by God. Nothing a human being can do to you can destroy or harm your soul. It doesn't matter what anyone does to your body. Your soul cannot be touched. No one, so, so get this, as a believer, no one can touch your justification before God. No matter what someone says about you, no matter what someone says to lie about you, misrepresent you, doesn't matter what someone does in opposition to you, they cannot touch your right standing before God. They can't harm your soul. They cannot affect your eternity in any sense at all. No matter what someone says about you, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus died. He, he is risen. He's interceding for us. No one can mess with or harm the interior soul of man. No one can do it. No one can undo your future justification. No one can prevent you from being raised in resurrection with Christ. No one can do that. No one can affect your standing before God. Now, what, can, what, what will God do to us? What God does to us, whether believer or unbeliever, is everlasting in its effects. It's everlasting. Number two, it affects us entirely, our soul and our body, and it cannot be undone or overruled. Listen to these texts, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there's final judgment. And then what's the next statement? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So Paul looks at final judgment where everything is ultimately determined, and Paul sees that, and it it creates reverent fear for God. And Paul says, knowing the fear of God in light of final judgment, we persuade others. We're going to be bold in our testimony to others because we fear God and therefore we are not going to fear man. Hebrews 13 says this, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me. If the Lord is my helper, if the Lord is with me, I have no reason to be afraid. Man cannot ultimately harm me. I ended the sermon last Sunday talking about, remember Dr. Ridley and uh, Mr. Latimer who were burned at the stake in Oxford? Let me rewind in the story before they were martyred, earlier in the life of Hugh Latimer. He had a preach when the king became present uh, on a Sunday when he was preaching. And he felt the fear of man because the king was present and he knew with the, his situation with politics and the leaders, he knew he could be, his life could be in danger and eventually Bloody Mary had him put to death. So it was not a completely groundless fear. This man had reason to be afraid when the king is present to hear his sermon. And I'll tell you how Spurgeon tells this story. So, uh, so at, at Latimer, not, not terribly long before he was to be burned at the stake, uh, it, earlier, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was seen as the highest church official in England. And uh, at this time, the archbishops were appointed by the king, and the king expected loyalty to him. So on one occasion, the king visited Latimer at Can Canterbury, and uh, evidently it was an unexpected arrival. So Latimer began his sermon this way, and here's how Spurgeon recounts what Latimer said. He's talking to himself out loud to start the sermon. It says, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are this day to speak to the high and mighty monarch? the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, do you not know from whence you come and upon whose message you are sent, even by the great and mighty God, 
who is all present and who beholds all your ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. Then it's recounted, Latimer, Latimer, he said, be careful what you say, the king is here. Oh, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say, the king of kings is here. So he said, listen, I understand the pressure in this moment to perform in a way that the king would like what I say, but I have a deeper and greater fear. The king of kings is present, and he doesn't just determine my fate in this world. He, burning at the stake is one thing, but this God will either cast me into hell or he will bring me into heaven by his grace, and so I will honor that king. I will not honor the earthly king as my ultimate allegiance in this moment, and he preached boldly the truth, and eventually it would cost him his life. Point number three, have no fear because your father is in control. Verses 29 to 31. These are wonderful verses. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, familiar verses, but that is a wonderfully assuring argument. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Here's what Jesus does to assure us. Jesus starts with the smallest, least significant thing you can think of, which is a, a, a sparrow that's worth half a penny, right? This is a fraction of a day's wages back then. So you got two sparrows sold for one penny. This is the most, uh, this is what poor people would end up having to buy. This is like the most forgettable kind of thing you could have as a, as a sparrow worth half a penny. And Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. He starts with the lesser. Okay, does God care even about a sparrow that you may forget about? Yes, in fact, Jesus actually argues an argument from God's providence over the animal kingdom. So just just look at this again. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? That doesn't just mean God is aware whenever a bird dies, although it does mean that, which is amazing. It means God's providence is touching even the death of a forgotten bird in the extended reaches of of the Amazon rainforest. Every time a bird in the middle of the Amazon that no human being has ever seen and will ever see is sitting perched on a branch of a tree and that bird dies and it falls to the ground, that did not happen apart from God's providential uh, intervention. The Lord is right there. The Lord is, is sovereign over even the death of a forgotten bird, a bird worth half a penny, and he will not fall to the ground. It will not fall to the ground apart from God. In other words, God is intimately involved even with the animal the forgotten animal that dies. Now, do you see the argument from the lesser to the greater? If God's providence extends, His goodness and providence and sovereignty extends to the death of a forgotten bird in the middle of nowhere, do you think God cares about those who are made in His image? How about this? Do you think God cares about those who are not just made in His image, but who are redeemed from their sin by the blood of His Son and adopted into His family so He is now their Father in Christ. Do you think God cares about those individuals? If He cares about the sparrow dying in the middle of nowhere, you better believe that God cares and knows about His adopted children in Christ, and He cares and knows about us. Here's the point. No harm can come into our life that does not come through God's loving and gracious filter. He will always bring about what is good for us. Here's one quote. Just as a sparrow seems almost the least significant member of the animal world, so hairs on the head seem the least significant parts of the human body, yet uh, neither is insignificant to the sovereign, intimate God. 
Now just follow this. Let's, let's look again here at verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, um, uh, C.J. Mahaney is a pastor who uh, has a shaved head, and he said, this promise doesn't bring me as much comfort as it might to others, okay? Uh, all your hair, hairs on your head are numbered. He said, I think I can keep track of mine. I've got zero, is what he said. I've got zero. Uh, but let, let's take seriously what Jesus says here. The hairs of your head are numbered. I had to Google just to see how many hairs were on the average head. With a full head of hair, uh, averages differ, but they say between 90,000 and 150,000 hairs on the average uh, head of hair. For those who have a full head of hair, uh, over 100,000 hairs on the average human head. And uh, it's amazing. The Lord keeps track of the number of hairs on your head. You say, well, what is, what is the point of that? Again, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Jesus keeps pick, picking the stuff that seems like it doesn't matter at all. He goes down and the Lord says, I'm keeping track of the number of the hairs of your head. You can multiply that out. That means the Lord Jesus is intimately involved with the smallest details of your life. Just make this practical. Jesus knows not just about the big trials of your life, I mean, sometimes we have this ungodly view that God is only there when it really, quote, matters. Everything matters to God. It's not just the big things. The small trials of your life, the small inconveniences, the struggle you have with jealousy or the struggle you have with complaining or the discontentment that you're dealing with or the unbelief that you're struggling to overcome, is the Lord intimately aware and involved with all of that? Yes, the hairs of your head are all numbered. One commentator pointed out, we tend to number the things in our life that matter to us. What are the things that we tend to keep track of? Think about it. It might be our finances, right? It might be in your bank statement. It might be stock market. It might be whatever it may be. What, what are the numbers that you tend to keep track of and check up on during the week? I mean, my guess is for most people in this room, there are certain numbers in your life that you care a lot about and you check up on over and over and over and over again. Whatever it might be, what are the numbers? What are the things that you check up, the statistics you check up on week in and week out? You're always curious what the numbers are, how things are going. That shows what? It shows that you're interested in it and it shows that you care about it. God keeps track of the smallest, most forgettable details of your life. You don't know how many hairs are on your head right now. The Lord Jesus knows everyone. The Lord keeps track of every single moment. The Lord knows everything. He has not forgotten anything. He knows you better than you know yourself. And the Lord is saying, listen, if I keep a number of the hairs on your head, you better believe I am there for you in the big moments of life. You better believe that when threat comes and it's life or death threat, which is in this context, they will put you to death is one of the verses here that we've seen last week. If it's life or death, Jesus is saying to you this, in the immediate context, here's the immediate application. If God is sovereign over the death of a forgotten bird in the middle of nowhere, you better believe God's providence will be in control and at the helm if your life is at stake. And nothing will come into your life that does not come to you through God's sovereign and good plan, and He will work it for your good. J.C. Ryle, Papa Fred loves J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle is a great uh, uh, writer from a century and, uh, and, and more ago. Listen to what he said. This is wonderful. Nothing can happen in this world without God's permission. There is no such thing in reality as chance, accident, or luck. The path of duty may sometimes lead disciples into great danger. Health and life may seem to be periled if we go forward. But let us take comfort in the thought that all around us is, everything around us is in God's hand. Our bodies, our souls, our characters are all in His safekeeping. 
No disease can seize you. No hand can hurt you unless God allows. Now, just for the sake of a contrast, let me just quote, I've quoted it before. Let me quote maybe the most famous atheist alive still, Richard Dawkins. He's got to be one of the most famous. Let me contrast what you just heard with how Richard Dawkins is an atheist and a biologist speaks. This is Richard Dawkins from his book, uh, um, A River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. Quote, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, so here's his view of suffering, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Do you have a stronger contrast between atheism and the gospel of Jesus? In the gospel of Christ, your most severe trial is brought to you by the loving fatherly hands of God and has worked for your eternal good in Christ and no one can harm your eternity. In the atheist worldview, your pain and pleasure has no purpose, and ultimately there's no justice, no evil, no good, just blind, pitiless indifference. Which do we choose as we stand before these two options? Let's move to point number four. We should not fear because Jesus will acknowledge you before His Father. This is so breathtaking, it's hard to even take in. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Can, can you imagine that? The day is coming when Jesus will name your name. If you are a faithful, genuine believer in Christ, Jesus, before the watching universe at the day of judgment, will name your name. Your name is written in the Lamb book of, Lamb's book of life. Jesus will name you by name and say, this individual acknowledged me before men. I have rescued them by my blood, and I will now own them, claim them. I will acknowledge them publicly before my Father in heaven. Can you imagine Jesus saying of you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord? Can you imagine Jesus saying to his Father, this is one for whom I died. This is one for whom my blood purchased. This is one for whom has been, I, have, I have given forgiveness and who is saved by my blood. That is a reward to live for, that Jesus acknowledges us before his Father. But maybe you wonder, what if I failed? It says here, verse 33, if you deny me before men, I will also uh, deny before my Father in heaven. Well, just hold your spot and turn to Matthew 26, toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. And obviously, you're, you're familiar with the story. You'll, you'll probably know what I'm about to say. But let me just say this. This was, this was slightly new to me, this one point here. I looked up the Greek word for deny, what Jesus used here. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. He uses that word deny in Greek two times here. And the only other two times that word deny is used in the whole Gospel of Matthew is with Peter on the night of his betrayal. So look, look at uh, Matthew 26, verse 69. Uh, now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it, same word, before them all, saying, I do not know the man. I do not know what you mean. Excuse me. Verse 71. 
And he went out to the entrance. Another, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it, same word, with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let me just say as a word of encouragement, if in the past you have been cowardly or maybe even in a moment of unbelief, denied Jesus in some moment, here's the answer. doesn't mean you're without hope. We need to do exactly what Peter did here, which is we repent. He went out and wept bitterly. He was broken over his sin. He was a humble man. And afterwards, was Peter willing to, uh, to, to claim Jesus publicly? 50 days later, Pentecost, 3,000 people, many of them were participating in the murder of Jesus a month and a half ago. He stands up in front of the whole crowd and says, this Jesus was the Messiah and you had him crucified. Did Peter acknowledge Jesus before man? Yes. So even for those who have failed and denied him in the past, it's not without hope. We must repent, we must get back up, and we must own him. We must confess him before others and show that we truly do trust in the Lord Jesus. Let me add one more piece here, verses 38 and 39. And this is in Matthew 10. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, Jesus is saying, I want to give you what's ultimately good for you. And if it costs you in this life, it will be worth it in the next. But if you try to hold on to the benefits in this life, it will cost you in the next. Let's do what's ultimately and eternally best for us, which is to know Christ and to live forever, even if that means a cross before a crown. All right, point number five, our last point. Uh, you do not need to fear because you represent the king. And there's more to this passage than just that point, but I want to make that point at least here. Uh, verse 40 of Matthew 10, you represent the king. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So here's what Jesus is saying. We should not fear because as we go before others and we represent Jesus and we speak his truth, how people treat us is ultimately how they treat the Lord. And if people receive and accept the message we are giving, they're accepting Jesus. Now, let's not have too high a view of ourselves right here with this text. But what Jesus is saying is, to the degree that we accurately present the message of Christ, if someone receives what we're saying, they're receiving Jesus. If we are presenting the true gospel accurately, when someone receives us and welcomes the message we are giving, they are receiving the Lord Jesus because we are his representatives. We are his messengers here in this world. Let me go a little further. Verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple... Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So here, we, all the disciples, are called little ones, right? Compared with the Lord, we are little ones. We're undeserving, we're dependent, hopefully we're trusting. And if anyone gives a disciple of Jesus a cup of water and welcomes him in the name of Christ because he's a disciple, that individual will certainly never lose his reward. One last thing, and then I want to close. Let's turn back 
uh, earlier in the chapter to verse 24 and 25. We ended here last Sunday. I want to end here again today because I think it's connected to our text as well this week. Let me reread 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let us remember that when Jesus asks us to enter a life that's going to involve opposition, and when he tells us to take up our cross and to follow him, he is asking us to do what he himself has done before us. And as has often been said, it is the infinitely heavier side of the cross that Jesus bore for us, taking God's very wrath and judgment for our sin. We really just get the shadow of what Jesus experienced when we take up our cross to follow him. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a courage, a lack of fear. I pray, God, that we could see what was so clear from the words of Jesus here, that at the end of the day, the truth will be known publicly, what is hidden will be revealed, so let us speak it loudly from the housetop, as Jesus said. Ultimately, human beings cannot do anything that will ultimately harm us. We should rather fear him who can cast soul and body into hell and not fear man. And God, we know that you are in control and you are our Father, and if you care about the birds in the forest, you care that much more about your adopted children in Christ. And if the hairs of our head are numbered, we know that the big things in life and the little things are all under your sovereign and good watch, and you will not let anything into our life that will ultimately be for our eternal harm. And God, I pray that we would acknowledge the Lord Jesus before man, and that one day we would hear the Lord Jesus uh, own us before you. Uh, what, What an amazing thought that is. And even now, God, help us to represent you well, that our actions would conform to what is commanded here, that our words would be in alignment with Scripture, and that it would be true that those who welcome and receive us in the message that we speak would at the same time be representing our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.